Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm Tyler Cobble, your host, and I'm really excited for our conversation this week with Mike Sowers, the CEO of the Commercial Investors Group, which focuses on adaptive reuse projects in the Midwest. Uh, he's currently writing a book uh, on real estate investing, which we've got to talk about. He's the host of the Creative Commercial Real Estate Podcast, and he takes a very similar approach uh, to commercial real estate as we do. He, he's doing uh, he's doing a course alongside the book. He's got all sorts of ways for you to get educated and learn how to invest in commercial real estate. So looking forward to, to our conversation today. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. Appreciate you coming in. Well, hey, that was a, that was a very brief introduction, but tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Mike Sowers? Uh, that's, uh, you know, I'll give you the short version, I guess. Um, I am a real estate investor who grew up here in the Midwest, uh, just north of Minneapolis, and went to college to be an entrepreneur. I got an entrepreneurial studies degree and I ran a franchise for college pro painters for a couple summers in college. And uh, nice. I really learned the value of a franchise system and I learned the, the value really of proven business models. And so what I found through there, they had this really cool software called C power and it was how they tracked all their stuff. And I was like, man, this is really the secret sauce here. It's, it's their system, but it's this software that runs everything. And I ended up going out on my own and I started uh, another kind of remodeling company after that. And I grew that over the following decade. And then I exited out of that business. I did a private sale in 2017. And all those years I was flipping houses, wholesaling, and did uh, did some rentals in there as well. So we did a lot of weird stuff. And I, I went to this one guy's boot camp on uh, creative seller financing. And it just completely changed my mindset on the fact that a lot of people look at the financing of the deal and the structure of the purchase of the property as two separate structures. And what this guy did is he, he unlocked the, the secret to really combining those two. So one of the rare things we do is, is uh, a lot of creative deals. So I kind of cut my teeth on you know figuring out how to estimate repairs quickly and how to structure creative seller financing deals through my residential career, but I never got into commercial because I was always like, well, you know, I got to save up a bunch of money and, you know, these commercial properties are different. I don't, I'm not really now well networked in downtown. In fact, I hate the kind of bureaucracy of that kind of stuff, right? That's why I didn't want to go into the corporate grind. Like a, a lot of my uh, buddies in college ended up going into the corporate scene. And so, Long story short, I, I grew that business. And what I realized is the whole reason I wanted to be an entrepreneur in the first place is to, is to buy back my time and have freedom so I could be there at my kids' soccer games. And what happened is I built a system that I became a slave to. And so I ended up having to give all my time. And so I realized one day when I was just kind of bored and worn out, and quite frankly, I was sick and tired of competing against other people coming out of a, a, a one-day seminar at their local RIA or doing uh watching an hgtv show and deciding that they were a house flipper people that really have no business doing this and i, I just I, I it started feeling like i was a commodity right and i was like man i just i gotta grind every single month and even though i was building this residual income it was like it just felt like a tremendous amount of work to add to to do a whole property renovate it fill it and then add 200 bucks a month in cash flow it didn't feel very scalable so after i sold my construction company i was like all right 
let's buy some commercial properties. So I linked up with this guy, started buying some properties and we did some value add deals. And I really unlocked the secret to how to structure private equity partnerships and really split the profit in tons of different ways there. And I was like, man, there's this whole new level of deal structure that I never even knew about. And that's really the secret sauce is how to do a joint venture or a private single asset fund and raise money from other limited partners. And once I unlocked that secret, I guess, well, what ended up happening is I bought, I bought some properties with my own money and then I ran out of money. And that's when I figured out that in order to keep buying properties, I had to raise money from other people. And so that's what I did. And once we kind of got that, I was like, well, I'm kind of repeating the same process over and over. Let's really fine tooth this. So I set out to write a manuscript that ultimately was my business plan so that I could hand it to a new hire or essentially duplicate myself and remove myself from the business. And I was thinking on it for a really long time. And eventually I realized I was actually writing a book. And so I actually um, linked up with a publishing company and went through the full process. And I wrote the manuscript in three months. And then we've been editing it and polishing it and adding graphics and all kinds of visuals and reorganizing things and, and stuff like that. And now we're set to launch that book on July 6th. It'll be available on Amazon. And, and that's pretty exciting there. So that's essentially what we're doing now. Uh, commercial investors group, it buys value add uh, properties in all four asset classes. We're really heavily um, targeting industrial and suburban office right now. I think there's a huge gap between perceived risk in and real risk in the suburban office game and what i mean by that is i we're able to get really good deals on properties and the cash flow mega mega cash flow on these suburban office properties um and then the industrial game i think the, the reason i'm so excited about that is the end user demand on both the purchase and the leasing side is just so so tremendous i just find so much more value in leasing properties to small businesses most of our stuff we're looking at is multi-tenant stuff, so we get that diversification. So if any one tenant defaults, we can still make our debt service. And we're trying to shy away from single tenant type stuff. Retail, I'm not super hot on right now unless I'm getting it for like, you know, pennies on the dollar. And apartments are sexy, but everybody and their grandma is going after them. And so it's just, you have to spend more money and more energy de sourcing deals. And typically we have to expand geographically as well to try and find deals and looking in kind of the outer markets where maybe the, the job mix and the industry mix isn't as strong. And I think that that creates longer term risk. Um, so it's not that I don't want to do apartment deals. We own apartments and stuff, but uh, I'm, I'm finding more deals in the suburban office in the industrial sector. So that's been our primary focus right now. And that's uh, essentially what we're doing is just implementing the, the seven steps to freedom that I wrote about in my book. Um, and we can go through those seven steps at some point on the call here if you want. Yeah, I would love to. And, and I would, what's, what's the name of the book in case anybody wants to go pre-order it? Sure. It's, uh, it's called just Commercial Real Estate Investing. And then the subtitles, A Step-by-Step -step Guide to Finding and Funding Your First Deal. And so here, here's the deal on the book, man. A lot of the books out there on the market and, and actually most of the commercial real estate authors ended up leaving me a blurb. And I love these books. These are all the books that I read when I got started. So there's no, I haven't read any bad commercial real estate books out there, but all of the books that I've read are really based on concepts. 
So they get you excited about it. It's a concept. And here's what ends up happening is when you're done reading the book, you're kind of like, man, I really want to do this. Now what's the first step? What is the first step that I need to do? And so I actually wrote my as a training manual for somebody to duplicate my process in their market. And so I wrote it as a linear, basically a roadmap to success. Here's step one, here's the action items, here's the homework, go do these things and then come back and read step two. And so you just work your way through it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I, I mean, that that's when I first got started in commercial real estate, I I felt the same way that you did, right? It was It's incredibly frustrating how little information there was out there and how difficult it was to learn from anybody, right? Because nobody really wants to share the secrets because they don't want to, they want you to become competition. And so I I actually ended up having to learn from people outside of my market first, which is really frustrating. Um, And I listened to podcasts and read books, but you know, seven and a half years ago, there just wasn't a whole lot out there. So uh, I applaud you for, for creating that. It's, it's, uh, it needs to be, it needs to be created. So yeah. And people were like, dude, aren't, aren't like, you're literally giving away your entire business plan like all the way down to like hey here's the mailers i'm doing here's what i say when i call people here's how i'm grabbing lists and skip tracing people like literally all the nitty-gritty details that people leave out of their concept books like it's one thing to write a book and be like hey here's a concept you're gonna buy property drive the noi up and sell it for a higher multiple and create more value than it costs you great cool book i'm excited but now how do i actually do it and so that's where i was like all right man let me just figure out how I'm doing it because it's repeatable, it's duplicatable, and it's scalable. And I know that I'm going to create a tremendous amount of competition. But at the end of the day, Tyler, my scoreboard isn't how much money I can make. It's how many people's lives I can bless. And so for me, that blessing is worth more to me than doing that extra deal that maybe one of my competitors is now doing. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, too, there's, there's so many deals out there. There is no way that you could possibly do every single deal that comes across your desk, which means there's plenty to go around for everyone. (laughs) Right. It's that abundance mentality. I just had uh, uh, my rep over at CoStar pulled some reports for me, and I I can pull them up uh, here during the call here, but it's insane how many commercial properties there are. I was having some reports done for the planning for – for our franchising. So we, we signed a franchise deal. We're, we're franchising into 182 major markets, duplicating our, uh, um, uh, opening up the franchising opportunity here in fall of 2021. Yeah, that's exciting, man. That's going to be a lot of work. So, so what's, what's that process like? I mean, kind of, kind of walk everybody through, you know, what, what you've created, what you're going to be franchising and how that process has been. Sure. Um, here, before I do that, I, I my Excel spreadsheet open. So right now in the markets that CoStar tracks, which is 138 markets nationwide, there is 2.6 million properties just in the retail, industrial, and office sector. And wow. then in the multifamily sector, there is 16,600 units. That's a so lot that's, of units. Uh, that's apartment units. That's, that's apartment units. So just imagine, I mean, what do you need to do? You need to do just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. And that's what's so cool about commercial real estate. If somebody's like, hey, man, why would I buy a franchise of commercial investors group? I'm like, well, that's simple. Deal flow, 
proprietary software, and funding. Those are the three key things that we offer with our franchise. So when you plug into our franchise system, it's literally done for you marketing. You're gonna get plugged in, you're gonna open our custom software, CRE tools that I custom developed. You're gonna have all the property data for your market with all the owners fully skip traced. You're gonna have all the contact data. And then we have a campaign manager, which literally rolls out marketing sequences to property owners, consistent. Generates deal flow for you. Those deals flow into our call center. They load them in your system and you get notified, hey, you got four tour, you got four properties of motivated sellers that want you to come look at their properties this week. You go tour the properties, you analyze the deals using my deal analyzer tool that's inside of our software. It's basically a really badass version of Argus built within our system, but simplifiable. And it ties everything together with all the county property data, Google Earth, you can measure roofs and all that stuff right within our system. It's really cool. Um, and then I built a, I basically took, when I sold my construction company, I built a custom estimating software that made it so that a 14 year old kid could estimate your kitchen in less than 60 minutes. I basically duplicated that for commercial. So now anybody, even without construction experience, they go through my online course. One of the modules is the fixed module. I basically teach them how to get on a roof, figure out exactly what they're looking for, evaluate the mechanicals, evaluate the parking lot, know how to take down a demising wall or add one, estimate cosmetic stuff, carpet, paint, bathrooms, and then all the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. And those are all the kind of key high level items that they need to be able to do. And so one of the modules in our software is our renovation estimating software. And so they can load that, punch in their takeoff of all their quantities, build a custom estimate, and then that ports into my deal analyzer. And it's super easy how we analyze these deals. It, it really is. I mean, it's not rocket science. We project what the thing's worth in the future when we stabilize it. We back out all of our costs to stabilize it. And then we take off our desired margin, and that's our max allowable cash offer. Then from there, I say, hey, if the seller's going to give me some creative financing, can I pay a little bit more? And the answer is usually yes. So if my max cash offer is a million bucks, I'm, I can pay up to usually 1.2, 1.3. But like, I'll tell you about a deal I got right now. My max level cash offer was 1.15, but I'm getting the deal done at 1.325, which is the price they had stuck in their head. But I'm getting a 86% contract for deed at 3%, 15 years fixed. Wow. Well, this is an elderly couple. So likely what's going to happen is they're just going to ride it out, right? And then their kids are going to inherit it. And there may be a point in there where the kids want to stay on or they may say, hey, we want to get cashed out. It's my money and I need it now. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and there, there may be an opportunity to buy back the CD at a discount in the future. But even not to, to lock something in at that kind of rate with no closing costs, essentially. Um, that's why I can pay a premium. It becomes more of a cash flow play when typically we're solving for equity growth in most of our deals. But when you do a creative seller financing deal, you're kind of converting to more of a cash flow long-term play because you can't turn around and sell the thing for a big equity profit right away, but you're still getting that big spread between your NOI and your cost of funds. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Cre creative financing is one of the easiest ways to get in and get your first deal going. Um, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. I mean, will you walk us through how you negotiated that, how you approached that, uh, and how you were able to pull that off? Because that's, I mean, those are some pretty great terms. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I mean, half of my deals come from our software, our direct, our campaign manager suite, and the other half come from broker relationships, either pre-market or off-market type stuff. Um, this particular one was uh, a new property manager that we were interviewing for a property we purchased, and that that um, we did not end up assigning that project to her but she came back and she was managing another building and it's an elderly couple like i said and she was like hey maybe maybe they would just sell it to you instead of putting this other 200 grand into it and so we're uh we're putting that deal together right now and uh, i think it's going to be a great deal and i'll end up needing about four hundred thousand in cash for that deal i'll go partner with somebody else and probably pay them you know six or seven percent on their money and then split the upside after that 50 50. Yep, there you go. So you set it up kind of with a preferred return and Yep, just a single layer waterfall after that. Yeah, th that's the easiest way to do it, man. I mean, I I've seen some people that have these incredibly complicated waterfalls and then they'll have multiple levels of waterfalls where, okay, well, if you bring in a million dollars, you get this waterfall. But if you bring in only a hundred thousand dollars, you get this waterfall. And to me, it's like, why overcomplicate it? I mean, maybe your investors will make more money. Maybe you'll make more money. Just make it simple. Give them a preferred return and just split it, you know? Right. And there's there's cases where there's an argument to be made for no preferred return um, yeah. and a higher split and things like that, especially in cases where it's a really heavy value add, fully vacant building or something like that. And if you're doing an accrued preferred return, I mean, oftentimes – you know, if that accrues in the first year, you're just playing catch up for the entire duration of the project. Look, I, I'm in the cash flow business, right? And, and you know, everybody's got their different things. I mean, I see some people that are just paying straight eight and they, there's no right or wrong way to structure a deal. I, th I think some people kind of sit on their high horse. I mean, I have deals where I'm paying people 22%. I have deals where I'm paying people 6%. Uh, it you know it depends is it debt or is it equity who's doing what work who's get are you getting paid an asset management fee or an acquisition fee as well you know we're not a fee heavy structured business right i just like to do clean simple deals we do all the heavy lifting and it's just about velocity of capital and you know most of my investors that come to us they're repeat investors we deliver on what we promise we're giving people uh fair returns usually in the double digit range um, and they're happy with that. Yeah, I would imagine they would, especially when you can get like 0.01% returns on your uh, money <laughs> sitting in a bank account. Um, tell yeah, us, tell us about it's your... It's good. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's a good way for people to diversify out of the stock market too. You know, the, the real estate market and the stock market are not directly related. And oftentimes they're inversely related. Um, so it, it is a good way to, to diversify. I think... A lot of people put a little too much in the equity markets and stuff like that, and even the debt markets, right? So it's just another good way. If you got a bunch of money in, you know, mutual funds or EFTs, and and you got some bonds, and you have this diversified portfolio, you don't truly have as diversified of a portfolio as you could have unless you're owning real estate. Now, you can buy real estate through the market if you like paying three layers of money managers so that you can take the same amount of risk as you would investing directly with a deal sponsor for a fraction of the returns because all of the yield is watered down by all the different layers of money managers in between the actual deal sponsor doing the work on the project and the investor because the investor gives it to their financial advisor they're investing it in a fund then the funds giving it to the deal sponsor 
you know what I mean? So it's like the project might've had an IRR of 20%, but by the time it trickles down to the end user, uh, it's 6%, but they feel like somehow they're more safe when the reality is if they just split their money up with three different, you know, syndications, they'd actually be taking on the same amount of risk with way higher reward. Yep. I completely agree. I mean, that's, and, and a lot of people don't know that they can invest in commercial real estate syndications. That's the other thing that, you know, because it's, it's regulated as a, as a security. So it's very difficult right. to just go out there and market it. I mean, you know, uh, online platforms like, was it CrowdFund or CrowdSource? Or, you know, those are starting to change uh, the game, the capital game for commercial real estate. And they're really opening it up to um, your, your, your more retail type of investors. Hey, we've got a question coming in from Evan. He's saying, what type of commercial building would you recommend for somebody starting out? I'm 23, looking to buy my first commercial deal next year, just flipping residential right now. Sounds a lot like you. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a loaded question. That's like asking what kind of house should I buy for my first house? Um, I don't think you should be as concerned about what kind of, and I'm assuming when you say what type of commercial building, you're referring to which of the four asset classes which are multifamily, retail, office, and industrial. So I will tell you that there's two kinds of risk in real estate. There's long-term risk and short-term risk. Long-term risk is the risk that the value of your property drops below your total costs that you have into it. Especially if you can't pay your mortgage and you have to sell your property worst case scenario for you is that you lose money or you lose your investors money so how do we combat long-term risk we combat long-term risk by putting a value add strategy in place as opposed to a stabilized investing strategy and what do i mean by that i mean solve for equity growth always buy properties that have problems that you can solve you're in the problem solving business and that's how you have to set your mind see if you had a billion dollars sitting in a checking account and you you're managing a hedge fund and you just have to get that money put to work and you don't want to take on any short-term work, then you're just buying nice, pretty properties that are at market rate occupancy with market rate rents, but you're going to pay premium top dollar for those properties. So if the market fundamentals change and the value drops, then you could be upside down on it. Now, you, you might still have equity in the property, but you might be below your cost basis, which means you're losing your investor's money, but you can still pay the bank back. So that's long-term risk. So I think you, you, you want to take on a value-add strategy. And what do I mean by value-add? I mean properties that have uh, problems, like usually renovation is needed. They have some kind of vacancy or under market rate rents or a combination of the two. And usually the financials are pretty jacked up. Like the property management company is not doing a great job negotiating contracts, or maybe you know all the tenants aren't set up on auto pay. There's a lot of different things. So, so in my book, I have seven steps to freedom. Steps four through six are your operation steps. Those are fix, fill, and financials. Those are the three key areas where you add value to a property. And the name of the game is simple. Let's say you buy a property for seven hundred fifty thousand. You put two hundred fifty thousand into it. You're in for a million. If that property is worth 1.25 or 1.3 or something on the back end, you've created more value than it costs you to create. So now you've just created a net worth for yourself of $250,000. So you should always 
evaluate your deals based on the value you can grow on them, not based on what kind of asset class they are. You should be more concerned about buying for value than asset class. Hopefully that answers that question. Now let's talk about short-term risk. Short-term risk is the risk that you blow the execution of your business plan. What is the business plan? The business plan is to fix the building up, fill the vacancies and drive the financials. That's steps four through six in the value add strategy. So if you blow your estimation of what the repairs are gonna cost, if you underwrite the deal that they're gonna cost 200 and it costs you 400, you screw it up. That's short-term risk that you're gonna take. Your contractor doesn't finish on time. Time is money. That's short-term risk that you're taking. The second thing is uh, your leasing. Maybe you don't lease it up as, as fast or for the rates that you thought. And that's where your underwriting and your knowledge in that area will pay dividends for you for years to come. And the third thing is the financials. Oftentimes, people fix the building up and they fill it with tenants, but they don't actually stabilize the financials. See, here's the thing. Selling a business and selling a piece of real estate are the same exact way. There's two different kinds of buyers. There's an owner user who's gonna buy the real estate to move their business into and they buy it for utility. They don't really care about the underlying numbers. They just want the ability to buy the building and if it's at or under what it would be to rent it, great. The second kind is really who you're gonna exit to in most cases for multi-tenant commercial. And that is a financial buyer. A financial buyer is simply gonna pay a multiple of the income that your property produces. Well, the multiple that they're willing to pay depends on how repeatable, transferable, and predictable the underlying cash flow is. So when you're selling a business, you're selling at a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Whereas when you're selling a piece of real estate, you're selling it at a multiple of the NOI. Well, guess what? NOI and EBITDA are the exact same thing. So that's the tie-in between like stocks and real estate. They're really, they're, they're no different. They're valued at a multiple of the income. So when you buy crappy properties that have really depressed incomes, the idea is you drive not only the underlying NOI or the underlying net income up, but you want to drive the multiple up. And that's where the financial step is so critical that you stabilize that. So you want to make smart decisions like, can you pay the utilities on a budget plan so that you're showing the same expense every single month? Can you do fixed rate snow removal contracts instead of pay as you go? What, what oftentimes people don't think about is the predictability of the cash flow and how that impacts ultimately the multiple. Well, what is the, a multiple? It's the inverse of the cap rate. So in a market where the cap rate's 5%, that's simple, that, all, all a cap rate is is a multiple. It's, it's a multiple shown as a percentage instead of a, a whole number. So if the NOI is 100,000 and the market cap rate's 5%, the multiple's one divided by 0.05 or 20. Somebody's willing to pay 20 times the NOI or $2 million to buy that income stream. And so you can do things when you hire a management company and make some decisions with the financials to try and make the income and the expenses stay consistent every month. And that predictability will actually yield a higher sales price for the same net operating income. That was a really long version to get around that, but long-term risk you can combat with a good strategy of value add properties and then buying locally so that you can be boots on the ground to estimate those costs and make sure you get it right. That's the biggest risk you take when you start buying outside of your area 
is that you don't understand the underlying rent rates, cap rates, and costs of construction. And that's where people really blow it on the reno uh, renovation estimates and what they think the property is going to be worth. So short-term risk, you can bat with good systems, and that's having a construction management system, a leasing management system, and an asset management system. Yeah, it's very important that you have the right team involved from every level of the deal because it just it makes sure that you're not missing anything. Because, I mean, like you said, I mean, the, the, the thing that makes commercial real estate such an amazing investment is because it's valued based on the bottom line. So, you know, if at a five cap, like you said, for every thousand dollars you add to the bottom line, you've created twenty thousand dollars in value on the property. So very quickly, you could see how that can either swing in a bad way or swing in a very good way. So it's important to make sure that you're you're keeping on top of that. That's why, you know, we've been doing this for years and we're just now starting to invest outside of Nashville because we've got a, a substantial enough team put together to where we can handle that. But I didn't want to go do that when I was working on my own because it would just be a distraction. Yeah. So so to answer the call, was it uh, Evan or Evan? Evan. Yeah, Evan. Evan. Evan, to answer your question, um, I can't tell you how you should invest. I can only tell you how I'm investing. And if I were 20 years old again or 20, mid, early 20s, here's what I would do. I would go find a, a five to $700,000 beat up, poorly managed suburban office building um i would uh project what that thing's gonna rent for once it's nice and pretty uh factor in some kind of vacancy loss into that and then apply a market cap rate to project the future value of it deduct your cost to fix it fill it holding costs and uh your closing costs and you can back into kind of what your break-even price is and then take like a quarter million off of that number and that's that's how much you can pay. Get the property under contract. You're, you're not going to sleep that night because you won't know if you're going to actually be able to buy it or not. <laughs> that happens every time. <laughs> but check it out, dude. You buy this property for, let's say, seven fifty, and you put two fifty into it. You're all in for a million bucks, okay? You'll find a lender who's going to give you, say, seven hundred grand. So now you got to come up with three hundred thousand dollars. You're getting a construction loan, so your your down payment's going to go into escrow at closing. And as you fix it up and lease it up, they'll release the money. So you got to raise three hundred grand. Here's what you're going to do: you're going to grind real hard with your friends and family. Start there, and you're going to just build a list of people. And what you're going to do is ask them if they have IRA or four hundred one k money sitting on the sidelines, and you tell them that they can invest it with you and you'll give them a fixed return before you take a penny and that you're gonna split the profit with them after that 50-50, but you'll do all the work and sign on debt. And you find six people with 50 grand in their IRA, have them roll it into a self-directed IRA, and they and now you've raised your $300,000. Yeah, there you go. That's a, that's a great that, way of going if, about if, it because the IRAs, I mean, a lot of people's IRAs aren't making them anything. Right. And let's be honest, who, who actually knows where their money's invested? If I was like, hey, tell me all the underlying stocks you own in this. Here's the thing, man. Wall Street has us, I was a finance major, okay? So I should be on the other side of the fence, like selling stocks and stuff here, right? But I'm so anti-stock market because the they just brainwash the shit out of everybody so that people literally think that like the way to... Uh, retirement is to go to college, get a good job, 
put 10 or 20% of your earnings in an account with your financial advisor, and that's going to grow over time. And then someday you'll retire and start living the good life. Dude, you go and do one of these commercial deals where you bought it for 750, you, you raise or, you know, put 250 into it, you raise 300, get 700 in debt. And all of a sudden that building's worth 1.3 million. When you're done, you refinance that thing, put a new million dollar note on it. You pay the investors their money back. You pay the original note off. And now you own that thing all to yourself and cash flow five grand a month on it. How many of those do you need to do to quote out retire? You need to do two of them. So while your buddies are still working at their first job, you know, working their way up the ladder, you give it a solid two to three years of really heavy prospecting and learning this and, and stabilizing these assets. And I tell you what, in two to three years, you can have 10, 15,000 in recurring monthly revenue with zero cash into the game and a net worth of a million dollars. People can do it, anybody can do it in any major market. Literally two to three years, I can make you a millionaire. Um, and and all you need is the system. So for, I think, $19.99, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> for, for only three payments of. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but I mean, it's, it's real though, man. I mean, that, um, it is it is surprisingly easy to make a million dollars in real estate. It really is. It like is. if you if you know how to go find a deal, if you know how to negotiate, it's 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 way easier than you would have thought. And the amazing thing is too, it starts to snowball, right? Like, you know, it, it might take a little bit longer to become a millionaire, but it's going to be very easy for you to double that, and then triple that, and then you know, it just it continues going on and on, which is which is a really fun thing about it. Um, well. Walk us through your your value add process because you said you've got the steps to how you approach a value add deal. Obviously, yeah. you know what we want to talk about today is adaptive reuse and renovations, and I think uh, you know having a set process of how to go about that is is incredibly important because I mean you you and I are very similar, right? A value add is one of, other than development is one of the best ways to make money in this game because you can just force all of that value. So what's what's your approach? Well, let me, uh, let me just lay out the clear seven steps, right? That's the 40,000 foot view. So the first three steps are your marketing and sales steps. So step one is find it. Step two is figure it out. And step three is fund it. And then four is fix, five is fill, six is financials, and then seven is freedom. So let's go through those. The first thing you need to do is you need to find a deal with a motivated seller and that deal may be on or off market. How do you do that? There's four different ways that you can do that. Hunting, fishing, farming, and gathering. So let's go through each one of those um, when I come back around. So I'll move on to step two, which is figure it out. We just talked about how to figure it out. You project the future value, you back out your costs, you back out your desired profit, and that's how you back into what you can pay for it today. Do not do not make the mistake of trying to figure out how much you can pay by calculating the current NOI on the property and applying a cap rate to it. That is what a lot of the books out there will teach you. You can only pay what the thing's generating for income today, and that is absolutely applicable if you're buying stabilized properties. If you're buying value-add properties, it will never work. You will never, ever do a deal. And I can prove it to you. Take a vacant property has zero income, has lots of expenses. So what's the net operating income? It's a negative number. 
there's no cap rate you can apply to a negative NOI to translate it to any meaningful value. So what's the learning lesson? You cannot apply a cap rate to an unstabilized stream of income and derive a meaningful result. And that's the, the biggest myth that all these other commercial real estate um, advisors are, are, are teaching out there in these old school books when they're not teaching value add, they're teaching how to analyze properties that are already stabilized. Well, yeah, you need to know that because that's how you're projecting the future value. You're projecting the future stabilized NOI and applying a market cap rate to translate that to what somebody would be willing to pay. And then you're working backwards into what you can pay today by deducting your costs and your desired profit margin. So that's step two, figure it out. Step three is fund it. That's simple. We just went through that as well. 70 to 75% debt, 20 to 25% equity. You're going to structure a partnership. You pay them a fixed, call it 8% return. And then you have some kind of split. Hey, you're doing apartments. It's typical to do a 70-30 split on apartments. Um, on office and industrial, it's not atypical to do a 50-50 split. Sometimes I do it as more of a debt uh, instrument as well. I've raised a lot of money out of straight 12 debt. People just want consistency. Um, and then step four is fix it up. Fix it up's uh, pretty simple. You can either hire a general contractor um, on a cost plus basis or firm bid basis, or you can be your own general contractor and you can hire all the subs. I've done it both ways. There's pros and cons to each. Um, same thing with leasing. You can grind it yourself and do all your own leasing, or you can hire a broker to do your leasing for you, or you can have your property management company do your leasing. In the apartment game, almost always, your management company is going to do your leasing. In the true commercial, which I don't really consider multifamily true commercial because they're not business tenants. You're still dealing with consumers. Um, I love true commercial because I find a lot of value in bumping shoulders with business owners all day who are entrepreneurs rather than renters. I just find more value in the conversations and it excites me like, hey, I'm, I'm having all these really cool business owners as tenants and these are all people who are my customers essentially. They're just a lot cooler customer base, more fun. Um, that's the fill step. And then the financial step is really managing your own property. What systems are you putting in place to automate the collection of your rent? And how are you stabilizing your seven operating expenses and making sure that they're consistent? Taxes, utilities, management, maintenance, insurance, repairs, and admin. Those are the key seven. I use the acronym TUMIRA, T-U-M-M-I-R-A, to remember those quickly. Um, and then the final step is freedom. For the freedom step, that's to uh, refinance or sell. So you can either refinance at the higher value, pull out your debt, pay off your equity partners, hold it for long-term cash flow, or you can sell it, extract your profit, either pay tax on it or exchange into another property. If you only have one partner, it's a lot easier to do a 1031 exchange. Hopefully the 1031 exchanges will not disappear uh, under the, the new proposed tax legislation. I think that's gonna be honestly probably one of the biggest threats to the investing industry right now, because if they take away the tax deferred exchange, um, nobody's gonna sell, <laughs> why would they? I mean, people who have owned properties for a really long time and have a really low tax basis, they're never going to be able to afford to sell because they're going to owe as much in taxes as they're going to be able to cash out, especially if they've refinanced. So um, pray that that doesn't happen. 
Uh, but yeah. you can do uh, other creative things. You can do uh, creative exits. So you, you shouldn't only look at buying a property on a master lease with an option or contract for deed or seller carry back. There's other ways you can sell property to avoid taxes. Same ways, sell it on a contract for deed, sell it on a seller carry back, things like that. So those are the basic steps. I'll circle back to the find one and then, uh, and then I'll shut up for a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's, that's perfect. Well, let's, let's do it. Uh, and that's really kind of the key to the whole thing, right? Like what are the two most important steps? It's finding the deals and, and funding them. Right. Those are the two hardest pieces. If you're spending 80 percent of your time finding and funding, you're, you're going to make a killing. And there's only really two things that you need to do super well to make your first million dollars in commercial real estate investing. Being able to accurately predict what the building's going to be worth in the future when you stabilize it and then being able to accurately estimate the cost to get it there. If you can do those two things really, really well you're gonna make a tremendous amount of money in this business. But if you're not good at those things, then that's the area where you really need to be focusing. Go take an appraisal class, go interview brokers, constantly looking at market comps for rental and leasing comps because that income stream is so critical. Make sure you know what the cap rates for your asset class are and understand building systems and construction estimating everything you can do to learn in those areas are going to make a tremendous impact on your ability to analyze deals quickly. Yeah. We've, um, we've done a number of, uh, of videos on underwriting from, you know, how to, how to do underwriting to, you know, every Wednesday at five 30, we're live underwriting a triple net investment or somewhat other investment opportunity, just so that we can kind of walk through, walk people through that process because that, in my opinion, is one of the first things that you should start doing if you're remotely interested in investing in commercial real estate, because it gets you analyzing these deals, looking at rental rates, looking at square footages, looking at different kinds of tenants and, you know, vacancies to understand what the market looks like, you know, because that's how you start to realize like, oh, well, if this tenant's paying $50 a foot, but market price per square foot is actually 25, when this lease comes up, they're gone. You know, so there's right. there's any number of like that's how you start to learn. I think that's such great advice. Yeah, and I, I I think that's that's awesome that you're doing that because not a lot of people are doing that, and so I can tell we we kind of come from that that same mindset. Yeah. Um, and at, at the end of the day, dude, that's that's the secret sauce. Like the the figure step is is a big piece of it. If 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 you don't understand the rent rates, the vacancy rates, the cap rates, and then the four kind of key cost areas, cost to hold, close, fix it and fill it, then that's where you really need to spend your time sharpening your ax. Um, now let's talk about deal flow and how to generate deal flow. Gathering is working listings. If you haven't gone out and toured every listing in your market for your chosen asset class, start there. And that's where you talk to brokers and you can learn a lot of that stuff. There's three ways to do good market research when you're out there touring properties. You can pull market reports from like CBRE, CoStar, any of the major brokerages. You guys probably don't know this, but they all offer free reports right there on their brokerage websites. They have a ton of staff that does research and writes all these really nice quarterly reports for industrial office, retail and multifamily markets. So just go to like CBRE.com. Uh, if you want to check something out like that, or, uh, I don't know, do you guys do market reports too? 
we haven't started yet, but that's actually something that we're going to start doing because now I've got a team of analysts, which uh, I always underestimated the power of having researchers and analysts on your team, but it really helps. So, uh, no, we, we use uh, mostly the CBRE. CBRE does a good market report, um, and we enjoy reading that. I, I do that, and Urban Land Institute, um, they don't really do quarterly updates, but they'll do an annual report. They'll do emerging trends. They've got some really good information. Sure. So I wasn't, I wasn't trying to steer, steer people away. Uh, I'm a broker too, but I mean, at the end of the day, look, uh, you know, there's a reason I, I'm not spending a bunch of money doing the research there because at at the end of the day, um, I I never, ever take those reports as gospel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, And you'll figure out why, because the other two ways to do research are the primary research. It's interviewing brokers and looking at actual transactions that got done. And the only way to get access to that is through either like a commercial version of the MLS, which your local commercial, um, association of realtors might have access to. We have one here called catalyst. Um, a lot of major markets do have that for licensed individuals. And then you can pay for like CoStar. Other than that, like you can go look at listings on loopnet.com and Craigslist to see what things are being listed at and call around to those brokers. But it's harder to find um, actual uh, comps. So our local one uses uh, an underlying service called Ready Comps, and you might be able to subscribe to that. But seeing what actual transactions are done at is, is, you know, it. So like in residential, if you want to flip a house, look, you're analyzing the deal the same way. You're projecting the future value and then you're deducting your rehab costs and your profit to back into how much you can pay. The only difference is the future value that you're projecting. You're looking at what other houses like it sold for that are nice and pretty. You're using a market comparables approach to projecting the future value. In our case, we're using an income approach to projecting future value by projecting the future income and applying a market cap rate to it. So that's the valuation. And that's so looking at listed properties is gathering. That's the first key deal flow. The second one is your farming. And that's kind of planting your seed with a specific network of people. 80% of your effort on networking should be with other brokers. And then the other 20%, I'd say with people that a motivated seller would call first, like an attorney, a CPA, a financial advisor. Um, those are the, the top three that come to mind for me. But when it comes to farming, it's a long-term play. So if you got to eat today, you can't just rely on networking all day, right? You got to go to something like fishing. Fishing is where you put your lure out there and it's a shiny object and you just see what you can catch. So... Uh, we do little bandit signs, signage, um, paid ads on Facebook. We do all that kind of stuff, postings on Craigslist. Basically, it's advertising, getting your message out there and hoping that somebody bites on it. Um, and then the last one's hunting. So if you, if, if you want to eat today, hunting by far is the best thing, and that's direct marketing. It's direct mail, ringless voicemail, text message, emails, and calling campaigns. Those are our five key techniques and we do a structured sequence to property owners prospective tenants and brokers with all those techniques and that's how we generate deal flow yeah you've got to if you want to be successful in this business you've got to get creative with how you're sourcing those deals because at the end of the day the biggest issues that i always hear from people is i can't find any deals there's not enough deals out there i mean you know we just had a client um, that we found a deal for that put two and a half 
two and a half million dollars together in two days because they found a wow. deal. Right. So like the, the, you know, money can be frustrating too. And I always, I complain about that all the time out here. just the, the capital side of it. Cause we actually find it very easy to find deals because we're constantly working it where we get creative with it. But you know, as long as you're willing to take those approaches uh, and you, you've got to learn how to do it, they work. Looks like we've got a, a question here. I want to, so I want to um, dive into just a quick, like a quick case study of a value add sure. project you've done, but real quick, uh, real career young money has a question. Uh, will most commercial lenders give investors financing with say 20% down on a larger commercial loan if they are raising part of that capital from friends and family? Most commercial lenders give invest. I think it's a yeah. So there, right? yeah. So yeah. If if I'm understanding the question correctly, they're they're basically asking, will will a lender give you money if you're raising capital from other people? Um, which absolutely. I mean. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to be stepping outside of my uh, lane if I start talking about financing. I, I'm not a commercial lender, but so I can just tell you what my experience has been. Um, there's a few different types of lenders. There's like national lenders, like your Wells Fargo's, U.S. Bank's, Bank of America's, okay? They're gonna lend you based on historic financials. So if you're in the value add game, guess what? You're inherently targeting properties where the historic financials suck. So it's gonna be really hard to get finance from them. And so one of the biggest spirit killers that my students run into is they make the mistake of, of sp spending all this energy sourcing a deal and then they uh, and and then they talk to three big lenders and they all deny their deal and then they give up. You never ever ever go to the big guys like that if you have a value add deal because it's just not going to pencil out. They want debt service coverage on day one, which means the NOI for the last two or three years needs to have been more than the mortgage payments, and it rarely ever is. So what you want to do is you want to go to local credit unions and. Um, uh, community banks. Those are where you get your front end money from. Now, lending on small, like one to five million commercial properties in the office, industrial and retail sector is different than getting lending on multifamily. Multifamily, a lot of times the lenders can back their money with Fannie and Freddie money, which means basically they can write the loan and sell it to the government backed entities. And so they're able to give better terms. They'll give 30-year amortization, 20% down kind of stuff, 10-year uh, fixed term, non-recourse debt. Whereas if you're trying to get a $2 million loan on a value-add retail project that's completely vacant and needs a million in renovations, dude, you're not getting Fannie and Freddie money. You're not getting U.S. bank money. You're going to your local credit union and you're going to have to have a kick-ass business plan and they need to believe that you're going to be able to perform on it. And so it's income, credit, and equity are the three things they're going to qualify you on. What is the deal sponsor team's income and debt to income uh, for this project and your global income? So if you didn't make any money, if you're showing $5 in adjusted gross income on your tax return, you're probably not going to qualify as a deal sponsor. It doesn't mean that your deal's dead. Raise capital from other people who will sign on debt with you that do have the income to show and give up way more of the pie, but get your first deal done. That's the, the first deal is the hardest, man. And so if you don't have income or credit, partner with other people that do on the general partnership side. 
and that's how you get those deals done. So I think what you were asking is you want to raise money from friends and family and have that money be the down payment. And that's a tricky one because you're going to have to disclose all that. I think the way the bank's going to look at that is uh, essentially like you're putting together a fund. So if you're thinking like they're all going to write you checks and then you're going to kind of just show it as you're investing the money, I wouldn't recommend that. Um, you should probably talk to an attorney about that. But I've done deals where I have zero capital into them all day long, but I sign on debt. And those are very, very typical of people doing syndications where the actual syndicator puts in very little, if any, capital. Now, whenever I have capital, I like to put it into the deal and it's easier to sell it to the investors and the lender. But if you don't have any cash, don't let that hold you back from not doing a deal. You can raise money from friends and family. What you're doing is you're creating a, um, a new LLC typically, and then you're going to be like the managing member, and then you're going to have some limited partners. But again, you're going to need to qualify at least on the debt by yourself. If you don't qualify for the debt by yourself, like global income, which means do you have enough other income outside of this property to cover the debt payments if the property shits the bet on you? And if the answer to that is no, you may have to bring one of your investors in to help sign on debt or bring in another general partner to do that. Hopefully that answers your question. Yep, absolutely. That was a, that was a very thorough response. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, well, hey, real quick, let's, let's dive into a case study of, of one of your value sure. add projects. I know you've done a couple of videos. Um, I think there was one that you did called, was it the wand building? Yeah, the wand building. Yep. Yeah. You want to talk about that one yeah, or is that, there another one that might make more sense? Um, uh, yeah, we can, we can talk about any of them. Um, well, let's talk about this one I'm working on right now. Um, cool. it was a building we bought for 3.3 million. We're going to put about a half a million into it. And, uh, I anticipate that it's going to be worth about 5.2 when we're done. I mean, that's not bad, right? It's <laughs> exactly the point. So that's, I mean, that's, um, and that deal I funded all on my own. I, I had, uh, I cashed in on some tax credits actually from the one building project. Um, and that was a, a three-year deal in the making and we did some federal tax credits and, and I was able to, to pull that money out and then just fund this other deal all on my own. But let's say that I didn't have cash at the time. Um, I needed to raise, let's say a million bucks. Well, to do that, um, I would have probably raised that in chunks of 100 to 250 from five to seven investors. So do you always do you always do it? I mean, do you look at your projects as a syndication or private equity? I mean, how do you what are the different funding sources that you've used? Dude, I'm all over the board, man. <laughs> there you go. Hey, always I getting creative. Have, yeah. Who's the best person to find if the seller will finance it? Look, look, here, here's a So going back to my original comment. The, the, fun, the funding and the purchase structure, people look at it as like, all right, I'm going to buy it for X and then I'm going to solve my funding issue over here. Dude, the first thing I look at is, all right, man, here's the deal, Mr. Seller. What do you need the cash for? Like this, this other deal that I'm, I'm hoping to get under contract here in the next couple of days, people are like, dude, that's crazy. How did you get a deal under contract on a 15-year contract for deed at 3%? Like who would ever do that in their right mind? <laughs> like, I just kind of smile because people don't understand 
the tax implications that people have. See, here's the reality of it, is that a lot of people who've held these properties for a really long time, they've depreciated the whole property down to next to nothing. So if they sell, the entire sales price is capital gains or a big chunk of it. And so they're gonna pay a huge amount of cash to the government right away uh, in year one. And then what's left over, they have to scramble to try and find a way to reinvest it. So let's say they cash out two mil and they pay a million dollars to the government because they, their capital gain was actually $4 million. Um, well, then now they only have a million dollars left and let's say they give that to their financial advisor and make 5% on it. Now they're cash flowing 50 grand a year. Well, what if I can do a deal where, you know, I'm able to show you how you can pay very little in taxes and when you die, your kids get the full two million. And instead of five grand or 50 grand a year, you, you actually get 75 grand a year. Essentially what I'm doing is saying, look, it's expensive for me to raise equity from other people. Why don't you stay in the deal? And instead of me paying you profit as a partner, I'll pay you a higher purchase price. Yeah, it's, it makes so much more sense for them. I mean, we do that all the time because whenever they are, avoiding taxes, you're making money, right? So it's, it's right. just a, my, my grandfather was the first one that taught me about that because he would always buy his homes. He would never, ever sell them. He would only sell or finance them. So he, he'd, you know, buy them, fix them up. Cause he was a contractor. He'd fix them up. And then he, he, uh, he would rent them out to somebody that it was kind of a rent to own situation. And then whenever they were ready to move forward, you know, two, three, four or five years into it, he would just sell or finance it to him. And then, you know, he offloaded all of the, 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 the bad, the potential downsides of being an investor and became the bank and then didn't have to pay taxes. So it was, it was a good move for him. I mean, it's, it's really easy to convince a seller why they should do that. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that, I mean, you just gotta, you, there's a reason I labeled my podcast, the creative commercial real estate podcast, because the, the creativity is something that can just really change the game and how you find deals, creative marketing ideas, creative activities, um, you know, creative deal structure, creative financing structure, um, creative asset management. I mean, you can bring your, your God-given creative nature into all the different aspects of this business to really not only make this business more fun and exciting, but really um, amplify your ability to, to do deals. Because if, if you're now offering somebody, every time you go to make an offer, you're like, well, I'll tell you what, I can list your property for X. I can buy it on a CD for 90% of X. Uh, I can buy it with a seller carryback for 80% of X, or I can buy it 70% of X cash. I'll just go raise all the money from these other people in the bank. Which one works best for you? Instead of getting 10% of your offers accepted, you might get 20%. And so now you've done twice as many deals with the same amount of marketing effort. Exactly. And who hasn't run into a seller that wants a relatively unrealistic price for their property? Right. I mean, doing the, these, oh. the seller financing <laughs> is, is one way to kind of work with that. Right. Dude, that's it, man. It's, it's, it's the age old, uh, the trick, uh, price or terms. Okay. You pick the price. I pick the terms. You pick the terms. I pick the price. You want the terms of cash. Here's my price. 700,000. You want to pick your price of a million? all right, I'll do that. I'll make equal payments for 45 years until paid at 0% interest. 
think about this, man. I went to refinance my property, okay? And I got the little statement and they have all the new loan disclosures. And I was, let's just say it's a, it was a $100,000 HELOC. And it said, if you were to pay this thing back over the entire course of the loan, it, I was gonna end up paying $160,000. I was like, okay. So the equivalent of that is, let's say I was gonna buy a property for 100,000. Well, I could buy that same property for 160,000, but instead of paying the bank, I would just make payments to the seller. So now you've just extended your negotiating price range by like 50%. Now, there's one caveat to that. That is assuming that you hold the property for 30 years. <laughs> right. So if you only hold it for three years, you really screwed yourself if you paid 150% because your payoff now is way more than it's worth. So in general, a, a safe range for like a three to five year kind of break even, which is normally how long we, we intend to hold a property is three to five years um, before we either refi it or sell it. Um, and with that, I'd say you can usually find creative options to get up in like the 120, 125% of your cash price. Yeah. I mean, that makes a big difference. I mean, think about how many opportunities that opens up if you're just able to think, you know, creatively about the financing. I love that. Uh, well, Mike, how can, uh, how can people get a hold of you if they have, you know, interest in becoming an investor, if they want to check out your, your franchises, your book, I mean, go ahead and plug everything you want in there. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Um, well, the Creative Commercial Real Estate Podcast and our YouTube channel are always free. We always put uh, fresh content out there. Tyler uh, is putting out some awesome content. In fact, uh, Tyler, we got to get you scheduled to get on our show if you'd like. Let's do um, it. And, and uh, our, if you just go to YouTube and type in Commercial Investors Group, you'll see a bunch of videos on there. But I'm all about just putting free content out there. Uh, if you want to get my book and stuff, uh, you can get that on my website to pre-order or available on July 6th. It'll be available on Amazon. Again, it's called Commercial Real Estate Investing, a step-by-step -step guide to finding and funding your first deal. If you want to get uh, locked in for the pre-order on that, go to my website. Um, you can go to creinvestingbook.com. That'll take you directly to my book page. Or if you just want to find it on my main website, it's commercialinvestorsgroup.com. Click on the book tab. Uh, on the main commercialinvestorsgroup.com uh, website, you'll also uh, be able to learn more about our franchise opportunities, our online course, and our uh, commercial investing mastery program, which is uh, the highest level of coaching that we offer without buying a franchise. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. If you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you get notified every time we go live with a new new uh, interviewee, a new guest. If you're listening on the podcast, please rate and review. That, of course, helps us get out there so that we can continue bringing all of this content to you guys. And we will see you all next week. Bye.